Tonight's talk is a reflection on one of the most central mantras in the Buddhist faith. And the mantra is Om Mani Padme Ham. Many of you have heard of it. Om Mani Padme Ham. The literal meaning is the jewel is in the lotus. The lotus is the symbol for awakening. And the jewel that's discovered in the lotus as we awaken is boundless compassion. In Asia, the lotus is, or the Asian lotus, is considered sacred to many faiths. And it's interesting how come. Its blossoms are really beautiful. That's, and, it, and it floats freely on the waters. And as many of you might know, it has roots that go down into the mud, and it's nourished by the mud, but it just floats around freely, these big kind of open blossoms. And so it's got a beautiful parallel to our own Buddha nature. Uh, it's said that we awaken through the mud banks of passion. You know, it's like we have to come out of the mud. It's what nourishes us. It's what frees us. And um, so it is with the lotus. But there's another parallel also, which is, and this is a quality that was just recently discovered about the lotus, that not only does it heat itself up, but it's one of the few flowers that can hold its temperature consistent. It burns starch as we do, as humans do. So it holds its temperature consistent, and it's theorized that the reason it does so is to aid insects that are pollinating. And it does it not only by it keeps the proper temperature for their feeding and digestion and reproductive behavior, but also so they can take flight after they've taken advantage of the lotus. So it's kind of beautiful that, like the lotus, we awaken out of the mud banks of our embodied existence. And like the lotus, as we awaken, it's our nature to provide nourishment and sustenance that others also might awaken and fly. So tonight I'd like to explore a little what it is, this jewel that we discover in the lotus as we awaken, how it is that our minds open up and and touch into this boundless compassion. And to start, as many of you are discovering here, compassion naturally begins to arise as we touch into suffering. And um, suffering or dukkha, and we've talked about this quite a bit now, is on the most basic level our experience of insecurity in an existence that's just endlessly changing, that there's nothing that we can grasp onto. There's nothing we can really control. A really good archetype for understanding suffering uh, is from Greek mythology, and that's the story of Sisyphus who is the king of Corinth. And he was, as you know, condemned by the gods to Hades and to eternal punishment. And he endlessly had to roll this heavy boulder up the hill. And then what would happen is he'd get to the top, after all his sweat, and it would come back down again, over and over and over again for eternity. So we all know this one, being trapped in, in cycles of repetition of what's painful, of being trapped in a sense of Um, inadequacy within our own being and all the different ways that we try to get out of it. 
all the ways we try to push the rock, try to control our experience, become better people, and find that no matter how hard we push, that doesn't work. It always comes back down again. We always recycle. So the big question is, if we see this, and we really do, we kind of know that striving and pushing and trying to change ourselves in all the familiar ways don't work, how come we keep doing it that way? You know, why do we keep resisting our beings and pushing our shadows under and trying to grasp onto things? Why not just let life happen? Let ourselves be some. I mean, that really is the basic instructions in practice. Just let it all be, you know. Just let life happen and recognize what's happening and be with it. But we have a million ways that we don't do that. On the most basic level, we're afraid that if we don't control things, if we try, don't keep our hands on, that things will go terribly wrong. In fact, they already are wrong, and they'll go even worse wrong, you know. <laughs> so, so we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our world, and we don't trust ourselves. And the self we're not trusting is really what I've talked about in the last few nights, the kind of shadow side of ourself, the um, fears and the greed and the neediness, the inadequacy. We're afraid that if we don't fight ourselves, fight how we are, that the demons will take over. Here's the story of Melarepa. He was, Melarepa was a, in the Tibetan lineage, and he was considered a hero and a crazy guy and a loner, and he meditated for years and years and years wholeheartedly, so he gained quite a bit of wisdom. So one evening, Melarepa returned to his cave after gathering firewood, only to find it filled with demons. They were cooking his food and reading his books and sleeping in his bed, and really they were take, they'd taken over the joint. So he knew about non-duality, about self and other, and he knew that these demons were probably a projection of his own mind's inner demons and so on, but still he wanted to get rid of them, so he set about that. And the first thing he tried to do was to teach them the Dharma. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, he, tried to, he taught them about compassion and about emptiness of self and... <laughs> And how poison is medicine, how the, the mud is really the medicine for transformation. Nothing happened. <laughs> the demons were still there. So he really lost his patience, and he got angry at them, and he kind of went at them. He went at them in a really heavy way, and they just laughed at him for that. And finally he gave up and just sat down on the floor, and he said, well, it looks like you're not going away, and I'm not going away, so here we are. We'll just be here together. At which point, all of them went away, but one. Now, we all have that kind of thing. We all have, like, we get freed up by a lot of stuff, but there's still that one thing, right? <laughs> okay, so he said, oh, this one is particularly vicious. And uh, he didn't know what to do, so he finally decided to surrender himself even further. So he walked over, and he put himself right into the mouth of the demon and said, just eat me up if you want to. At which point, the demon left. Gone. Evaporated. That's the story. <laughs> um, the moral of the story, when resistance goes, the demons go. Our suffering is 
not from the pain itself, but the ways that we fight it, the ways we resist it. This is something that, just from talking to you all over these last few days, I know is an understanding that's really becoming quite right with us, that when we fight whatever's there, we fuel it in some way. We just create another layer of aversion. And it reinforces a sense of an enemy, that something's wrong. So our practice here on retreat and in life is really to begin to see clearly all the different ways that we fight. And it gets subtler and subtler. I mean, it starts with the really big ways, but then on the subtlest level we'll resist by coming up with a, with a, a nice cosmology about how things are in the midst of stuff. You know, we do it subtle, more and more subtly. And the primary area we do it in is through our thinking. That's why there's really no freedom until we, in our practice, begin to sense a space that's bigger than thoughts. It's why in the first couple of days of retreats, there's such an emphasis on concentration. Because just to get the mind to come back again and again and begin to quiet so we're not so lost in thoughts, we begin to sense the space that's around them and under them and between them. There's more of a world there to rest in. Our thoughts are really the stickiness that keeps us involved in this resisting and grasping process. They keep on reconstructing a world that tells us something's wrong, that tells us who we are and what's wrong and what we need to do and why we shouldn't wait and what we should worry about next. So a lot of our practice is simply this willingness to just not take them quite so seriously. You know, just to let go and and see what else is there, come back to the breath, but not to believe them quite so much. It's a real sign of the fruition of practice when thoughts are there and there's just a place in us that knows it and and doesn't, doesn't buy in so much. When I went up to IMS for the month-long retreat, on one of the first talks that Joseph Goldstein gave, he said, as a basic guideline, there's nothing worth thinking about. (laughs) That was clean. He also said, and this was at another retreat, but this one really helped me, so I'll tell you. Which he, which he said that he got to a point, he was you know, caught up in very interesting thoughts, but thoughts. And he asked himself, do you want to think or be free? How's that for an either or? <laughs> the retreat form itself is a real letting go. As you know, we've, we've let go of a lot of layers of the distractions. But what's so awesome is how fully we create multitudes of other levels of it for ourselves when we're here, even when there's not a whole lot else going on outside ourselves. We keep ourselves in a trance in our life at large, and even in retreat it's so easy to get lost and only be half here. So the practice is one of discovering that, discovering, oh yeah, gone again, and waking up again and again in the most simple way. It doesn't have to be fireworks. It's just that recognition that we've been gone and that coming back.
This is kind of the element of, of letting go. A story I love a lot, and um, this is, was kind of given in a talk by Ajahn Sumedho, who's uh, a Buddhist monk teaching in England, and a number of you know this one. He writes, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and uh, study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majjhimakaya and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. (laughs) There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So letting go, letting go equals letting be, really. It's the same thing. Letting go is not an action as much as an allowing things to be and how things are is they keep changing. So if we're holding, letting go means just letting things take their course, letting be. Now, it takes tremendous courage to do that because we're afraid of what's going to happen. Just like it takes a lot of courage to come to a retreat because as we've talked about, the very nature of practicing presence, of letting go of our resistance as to what here, what's here, is that what we've tried not to feel habitually, we get in touch with. It's what uh, Pema Chodron describes the soft spot, you know, the vulnerability, the place where, where we're really tender, where we're very alive and very raw. So we habitually try to protect ourselves from feeling what's difficult or intense. And we try to protect ourselves from being exposed to ourselves, and we try to not have other people see it. It's really a part of our lifestyle to kind of stop the world from seeing quite how raw or vulnerable or inadequate we feel. You know that phrase, looking good, I talked to you about the other night. Well, so many people find on retreats that they're doing walking meditation and a half of the awareness around walking meditation is how other people are seeing them do walking meditation. Do I look slow and concentrative and mindful? And and then the other half is really trying to do it slow and mindful and concentrated because it's a good thing to do it that way. This is fairly pervasive. (laughs) I won't ask for how many hands, but you know what I mean. It's, we we all do this. We want to look a certain way. And we don't want to look another way. And that's the kind of great story under so many of the human dramas. So many of the great novels and, and plays and so on are just this whole theme of getting exposed and the fear around it. It's the source of all our fear and shame, getting exposed. One of my great teachers, 
has described it in many short but clear and succinct ways. This is Mr. Larson. He describes an auditorium full of professors listening to a speaker who holds a duck. They hold ducks, too, except for one alarmed man. The caption says, suddenly Professor Leibowitz realizes he has come to the seminar without his duck. (laughs) Here's another. Sharks figure out why swimmers flee them. Whoa, our dorsal fins are sticking out. I I wonder how many times that screwed things up. (laughs) A friend of mine went through a very painful breakup in a relationship, and um, she felt that she had really been open, and she felt that in her openness she kind of got dropped, you know. It's like what was seen was not liked. So she sent me this. And this is a picture of two male slugs (laughs) (laughs) at a bar. (laughs) I don't know if I can get this one out. (laughs) Anyway, they're, they're both looking very depressed. And one of them saying to the other, So she's persistent, and she slowly coaxes me out of my shell, and then, pow, she screams, geez, without that nice shell, you you look exactly like a slug. (laughs) I knew that one would be hard. At IMS, they have a sign that's up on the bulletin board a lot, and it says, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. <laughs> so, so here we go, and we look within, and we find all the conditioning. And we find the awareness and presence to be with it. But it's challenging. And one, one man came from an interview, and I, I just love this, the way he described it. He said, I finally understand joy. And he was asked more closely to it. And he said, it's really about just getting real, you know, that there's such freedom in getting real when you can really be with all the elements of your personality, all your elements of your body and mind. And when we're not real, there's a sense of insincerity. You know, Annie Lindbergh's line, the most exhausting thing in my life is being insincere. And we all feel that. We, we don't like it when we're not sensing authenticity, and yet we get contracted into that. Chogyam Trungpa, who most of you have heard of, a Tibetan teacher who's not alive now, um, has his center out in Boulder, Colorado. And an incident happened with a young boy several years ago, or several years before he died, actually, that is, act- is quite moving, and I'd like to tell you about it. He was 15 years old, a Hispanic boy from Los Angeles, and he had been living in a very violent neighborhood and part of gangs for several years. 
And while a lot of the gang members were going around murdering each other, he wasn't doing that, but he was a mean guy. You know, he was bright, and he was clever, and he was funny, and he was mean, and he pushed people around and slapped them around and so on. And his mom was really hoping to kind of get him out of that world and sent him for the summer to Boulder, and he ended up staying with a group of people that were loosely affiliated with the Buddhists there. So one day they brought him to one of the gatherings, um, the Shambhala Buddhist gatherings. And <clears throat> towards the end of the gathering, Chogyam Trungpa did what he did frequently, which is he sang the Shambhala National Anthem. Now all of his followers always flinched and were very embarrassed whenever he'd do it because he has this very high, squeaky, cracked voice and he insisted on singing loud. And In this case, they were outside and it was being broadcasted over these big fields. <laughs> it was pretty wild. So he started singing and this uh, teenage boy started crying. And later he said that the reason he cried was because he had never seen anyone that brave. He said, that guy, he's not afraid to be a fool. And it turned out to be a major turning point in his life because he realized that he didn't have to be afraid to be a fool either. That all that persona and macho and chip on the shoulder, he, he didn't have to cover his own vulnerability and humanness. And it, because he was bright and he really did catch on to that message, his life turned around. And he got educated, and he's now in L.A. helping other children, other kids in gangs. So it's really about a willingness and a courage to be with the messiness inside us and be willing to just be who we are and the freedom that comes out of that. What we touch into what we connect to when we're very, very present, when we're willing to be with what it is, what is there, is a deep understanding of how life is. We see what's true, and the only place we can see what's true is when we're connected just in this moment. So what is it that we see? You know, when we connect in with what's painful, with what's difficult, what do we see? The truth that the Buddha pointed to again and again, he said, when you stop and you look, what you will discover is that it's empty. That anything that you're experiencing, whether you perceive it within you or outside of you, is empty. And we talked about this some last night, when he uses the word empty, empty of what? (coughs) The Buddha's basic teaching is, empty of any ongoing entityhood, ongoing constant sense of self, that there's nothing constant because it's all continuously changing. There's no separate self. Now, the questions that have been coming up from this group and the questions that are always there are really important because it's not the way we think it is. I mean, most of us spend most of our time thinking we're a separate self, right? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty deep in our psyche. And first to say, we're supposed to be thinking we're separate. I mean, that's the way we're designed. So not to take this teaching of no self and emptiness and that there's some mistake that we're how we are. 
developmentally, we're meant to be born into this world, get this idea of being separate, develop an ego that functions on the basis of being separate, and we're also designed to begin to wake up out of that into a larger sense of relatedness. But as many have said, in the, especially in the West in the last ten years, it's really important to honor this sense of being somebody before we try to crash through those boundaries and experience ourselves as nobody. So this is the movement from a small self to a universe, sensing ourselves as part of a universal energetic whole that's really not, that's, that has its own unfolding like a flower or like any other being or creature of nature. A rabbi, after service in the temple that he was officiating at, went up to the altar and started bowing, saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the cantor saw him doing that, and he joined in and did the same thing. You know, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, bowing very, very low, very humbly. Well, the custodian that was there saw them and thought that looked interesting, so he joined in also, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi nudged the cantor and said, look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) (laughs) So there can be a lot of ego in trying to transcend your ego, you know? (laughs) So we're meant to have one, though. We're meant to have this ego, at least be identified with it for a while. A good metaphor I've heard uh, is kind of just sensing the ego as a room, that we have, that we live in this sense of a self as a room, and, you know, stuff comes in, light comes in, the door opens, closes, but mostly it's us and then the world out there. And gradually, over time, we have the courage and the interest and the care to open the door more and open the windows more and let there just be more of a flow, more of just the world coming in and us going out and so on, till we become part of the world and the world part of us. But in the meanwhile, there are many times along the way that because of fear, we need to decide to close the door again. That, that it's a conscious decision, that's enough, I need, and it's boundaries, and it's boundaries that are necessary. We don't want to get flooded or overwhelmed. And this is a bit in response to the question this morning, that, that is, that's a healthy thing that we need to do. And so what happens over time is when we close the door, we, because we know ultimately we really want to have the fresh air, um, when we close the door, we use that to regroup, to reconnect with what will give us the humor and the perspective and the courage to open the doors and windows wide open again. Eventually, we begin to sense that who we are is not the space inside the room. We're just space, and we're space that, that just belongs everywhere and no longer threatened by what appeared to be outside versus inside. But that takes some time to wake up in that way. If we keep constructing our beliefs about the room or who's inside and what's outside, every time we put that out, that again reifies a sense of self. So what meditation helps to do is to see how we're doing that, seeing how we're producing a self, so we're not quite so identified as this closed-off room. We begin to see beyond that. 
as I mentioned last night, we begin to recognize that what we've labeled as self keeps on changing depending on every other circumstance in the universe. We're absolutely interdependent. That how we are is influenced by whoever we're with. Our mood is influenced by everything from the food and the weather and the drugs and the temperature and the what we have to do tomorrow and what we did yesterday. Everything affects our present state of mind and body. There's no way to describe a static sense of self. That's on one level. On a more subtle level, when our thoughts quiet down and we pay very close attention, and I know many of you have noticed this, what is it that we can point to as me? In any given moment, you might have a sensation happening or you might feel the breath. You're not just a sensation, you're not just the breath. Or you might have a really deep sense of a fear, a clutching fist gripping you in the chest, but you're not, the self is not just that fist in the chest. You might have an excited, happy mood. You might see something. You're not just the sight or the mood. So at any given moment, it's just phenomenon appearing and changing and moving, and there's nothing we can point to as me. The Buddha teaches that our lives are a series of ever-changing processes, feeling, thinking, sensing, and there's not a single element that can be considered as unchanging self. Our being arises like a temporary pattern of waves from the ocean of life. And for many, this sense of ocean and waves can be really helpful in sensing that, that the waves are part of us, but they're not all of who we are. Jack Cornfield writes that some traditions call this ocean the Tao, the divine, the fertile void, the unborn. Out of it, our lives appear as reflections of the divine, as a movement or dance of consciousness. The most profound healing comes when we sense this life-giving emptiness, our belonging, our connection. Empty of self means full of everything. Any set of ways to we point to as self is smaller than who we are. We can't possibly identify a self that's anything more than a fragment when we think about a self. We're the living, changing whole. So our waking up is really the waves realizing their water. We have a sense of being this constellation or set of waves. And it's this recognition of the stuff of ourselves, the real essence, which is water, just moving and changing. Chogyam Trungpa writes, when we try to hold on to separate existence, we become a bundle of tense muscles protecting ourselves. That's our basic contraction or tension holding on to this sense of separateness. In a little different vein, Chinese writer Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
pretty simple <laughs> dharma, isn't it? <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh calls emptiness or no self interbeing. You know, we're just all interrelated. You can't take out any one piece. And the way the Buddha described it is the only real way to experience that is to simply enter into experience, to look. He mostly would give a teaching and say, but don't take my word for it, go check it out. Which is why we practice, which is why anatta or no self is not something that early on you talk a lot about, because it's really uh, words can just point to. To penetrate into the experience of a given moment is to begin to wake up to the sense of no self. When we touch life fully, not grasping or stopping anything, letting the flow happen, practice deepens and the movement of our experience really becomes clear. Thoughts come and go like clouds and feelings kind of appear and and disappear, just lasting for a short while. When we attend to the sense of the body, solidity really disappears, we dissolve. If you really pay attention to the body, there's no leg or knee, there's just sensation and vibration. It's hard to put a container on the body. It's like what we thought was the edges don't really exist as edges. We just become part of the world. There's no boundaries. With continued deepening, there's a sense of great expansiveness. As we relax that gripping on to separateness, we really become all of it. It's uh, very much as the Tibetans describe, the sense of really being like the wide open sky. And in this vast space of awareness, what we experience is just appearances <coughs> happening and dissolving. Life appears, it disappears over and over. And all that we can say we are is kind presence, awareness, just being with it all. Let's just do for a few moments, because these are a lot of words. Let's just take a little guided meditation break. From There'll still be words, but you'll be meditating on them more, maybe. <laughs> and as you set yourself, sit in a very comfortable way. You don't have to sit with any tension. What I'm going to ask you to do is just to reflect on some of the, the words in a Tibetan meditation and, and then to call into mind a part of yourself that is difficult to be with. Um, just to explore what it's like when you do that with a kind of open awareness in this kind of a meditation. First, to meditate on the following words. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So relax, let go a bit. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do nor undo. Let the entire game happen on its own. So relaxing back now, sensing an open awareness that you can rest in. Taking some moments as we do 
during our sittings to just listen to sounds. Sounds arise unbidden. We have nothing to do, nothing to control, just to notice them. Whether it's close-in sounds, sound of my voice, sounds in this room or outside, it's all just happening. Allowing your awareness to be very big, to be the space that it happens in. Sounds come and go. Sensations in the body come and go. Saying yes to whatever arises by yielding to it. Sense that whatever appears, sounds, sensations, moods, that you can rest in an awareness that yields to totally connects with what's there, allows it fully. Bringing to mind now whatever that part of your experience has been that you might have discovered today or in the days recently that's difficult to be with. And just inviting that difficulty to make an appearance. And sensing whatever it is as a wave in the ocean. Or as a current in the sky. Continuing to relax and rest in a very open space of awareness but welcoming and yielding to and allowing what's difficult to be there. Again from the Tibetans, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. No need to fight anymore, just to rest and let what's there be there. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping or resisting, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. With a deep letting be, we become the flow, interconnected with all of life, nothing excluded or resisted, intimate with our experience. There's room for everything. Coming back in whatever way you'd like, opening your eyes, moving if you'd like. This is considered the pathway of radical acceptance. Radical because it totally shifts our sense of who we are to open to and make room for and yield to experience in this way. The third Zen patriarch was asked 
or was describing acceptance in this way, he said, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Real pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. Then someone said, asked him the question, but pain's not acceptable. And then Maharaj, it's the third Zen patriarch, responded, why not? Did you ever try? Do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self by its very nature is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your true nature, your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So when we speak of wisdom, we speak of the mind's recognition of how things are, of the mind's recognition of impermanence, of emptiness, of our interdependence, and of the luminosity or natural radiance of being. This wisdom that's experienced by the mind is experienced by the heart as compassion or love. It's really the same thing, kind of different frequencies, but same experience. As we see our connectedness, we become increasingly sensitive to the suffering that comes from any sense of separation. The more we feel connected, the more any type of sense of separation we notice. We feel it even when we get very quiet in meditation with the arising of any thought of self. Any thought of ourself, and you'll sense a subtle contraction. Sometimes it's felt just a little bit in the heart. Sometimes it's really, ugh, something's wrong. We get that sensitive, even a little thought, and then sensitive in a much bigger way when there's the greater kind of separations. When we sense our connectedness, we really see how any grasping or resistance causes pain. We also see that it's our shared predicament, that we're all in it. It's not so personal. Compassion is the natural response when we've honestly faced our own suffering. And in our daily life, the more that's the case, the more we sense that connectedness and the more we're connected with our own suffering, the more we're able to forgive and include everybody because we see it in everyone we are able to respond to the most hurtful and unskillful behaviors with love rather than more hate. And this is really modeled by the great heroes, the spiritual heroes that most of us really appreciate. Um, I love the stories of Nelson Mandela tells, you know, that you hear about him leaving jail after spending such a big chunk of his adult life in jail and really being so um, sweet and respectful towards his jailers. You know, or the Dalai Lama who refers to the Chinese as my friend, the enemy. A story that I heard that touched me a lot on this vein was about a woman in D.C. whose son had, com- had been murdered and she, was, she went to court and on the day of his 
of you know the trial he was murdered by another young black man and she sat there you know watching the trial go on and <clears throat> as he, you know he, the 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 man was convicted and he was going to be sent to jail and as he walked by her she said to him i'm going to kill you and and then he walked by and he went off and he was put in jail and then as the as time went by she began to visit him and she visited him and brought him food and books and some medicines at a certain time and so on and became the one person that and he didn't have anyone she became the person that was always there and finally it was time for him to get released and she started talking to him and said well, what are you going to do he didn't know she said well i'll get you a job so she lined up a job for him and and she said where are you going to live and you can come live with me and as as the story goes she adopted him he became her son and it turns out that in um, many african traditions or several at least it's part of the tradition when somebody destroys something or kills or steals or whatever that then they become the, that tribe becomes responsible for in some way taking care of and so here she had this great loss and she told them when i said to you that i was going to kill you i meant that i was going to kill the part of you that could ever take life in that way so this is the the waking up and seeing in others their humanity and not just seeing how their conditioning has them contorted and contracted seeing through all that it's the parent that sees their child misbehaving and can honestly respond with i love you and i don't like that behavior that's just one level of it this is a story about the zen poet ryokan that uh is really sweet ryokan lived in a small hut at the foot of a mountain One evening a thief broke in only to find that there was nothing in the hut worth stealing. When Rayokan returned, he found the thief and said, "You've probably come a long way and you shouldn't return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift." Shamefaced, the thief took the clothes and left. Rayokan sat down naked and looked up at the sky. "Poor fellow," he said. "I wish I could have given him this beautiful moon." what we discover as we wake up to this softening of the heart the sense of connectedness is that we can get away with less and less it's just very hard to get away with blaming other people for very long or being angry at anyone for long um just because not that it's right or wrong but because we experience the anger or the blame in our own hearts as a heaviness as a tightness as a as a pain in our own being so what begins to happen is more and more quick there's less and less lag time in terms of blaming and criticism and so on um we own it more we say oh it's within me it's this is my my experience but then there's even yet another step you know that's the first step as we kind of take it back we don't instead of blaming the other outside there we say this is my pain this is this is my stuff but then there's the next step is really it's not mine either it's just the pain the anger do you know what i mean it's a universal experience the sufis describe it like this 
They say, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is a part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. That's a really important shift, that it's not my anger, my guilt, my shame, but just those are universal forces that move through us. This kind of sensitivity is a real gift, and it awakens us but it's also experienced as a loss. All that's familiar we lose as we wake up in this way. Jack Engler, who's a psychologist at Harvard and also a Buddhist teacher, uh, described the spiritual path as one of grieving, that it's a gradual release of all we hold most fundamental, the loss of our preferences, our opinions, our behavioral habits, and most deeply the cherished notion of the self. We have to give it all up, so that's kind of a sense of grieving. And while it yields freedom, there's natural stages where the feelings of loss and fear and grief are overwhelming. That's where we're at. And and there's a real sense of meaninglessness, because historically, all the meaning we've made has been cultivated around a sense of me, my, myself. So all of a sudden, it's like, why do anything? Why? It's just, there's this real kind of apathy or or kind of deadness or emptiness that can come up. And that's a really important stage in practice, when when the fear or the meaninglessness is predominating, because everything that's familiar about who we are, we're kind of being faced with letting go of. And it really then comes down to, as, as many of you have been noticing, really facing that fear in a direct way. Fear is the shadow of a separate identity. As long as there's a sense of separateness, there's going to be fear. Fear is what we experience as we begin to face that reality. Jack Hornfield describes that when we feel fear, it's like a light bulb going off in the head saying, about to grow, about to grow. So opening to fear is really waking up out of a small self, but there's also a dying, a letting go. Lao Tzu writes, the invincible shield of caring is a weapon from the sky against being dead. There's no other way to face our fears without the largeness and power of our hearts. It's too much otherwise. It's too much of our old identity and conditioning. The only thing big enough is to face fear with love. But sometimes, when we're feeling a lot of fear, we're very, very disconnected from any sense of caring. It's very hard to summon up any of it, right? So what then? I mean, it helps to even know that if we could care a little, it would help, because then we can at least somewhere in us say, well, just may I care, may I be kind towards this fear. And that more and more can become a habit and a way of working with things. But sometimes it feels very distant. Metta, as a regular practice, can begin to train the mind, train the heart, to get back in connection, that we can come back to ourselves. So... And I, again, I've, I know a, a number of you that have been doing this, that just to put our hand on our cheek or on our heart can begin to reawaken that sense of caring. We learn tricks. 
And they're called skillful means for that reason, that actually the caring is there, but it's buried by the fear. These tricks reconnect us with our nature. To put our hand on our own cheek, to offer ourselves a prayer that's kind, brings back that sense of heart. Sometimes we can't do any of that. We have no space at all to hold ourselves. We're that tight. And when that happens, it's really important to be able to reach out. It's important to be able to, because we belong with each other anyway, to let others hold a space, be a container, be there. One woman at a retreat I led in Barry uh, several years ago described it that she said that when she really couldn't hold herself at all, she imagined herself resting in the heart of the Buddha. She had this beautiful visualization or, or being embraced by the arms of the Buddha. That just in some way she was being held by this energy of love and compassion. And this is a very uh, common part of the Tibetan tradition to have some sort of an image or visualization of what represents love, in in that case, the the bodhisattvas of compassion, and to sense ourselves being held by that, this radiant loving energy you can visualize around you that really, with all the tenderness and care in the world, is holding you. And then what happens is if we let that be there, we reconnect to the place in us which is that compassion in this universe. We reconnect to our own hearts. So this is the jewel. It's the heart that we reconnect to. It's, this is the path of the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva means awakened being. To train the heart and mind so that any circumstance awakens love. To hold and be held by that love. What dies, it's an awakening into life and a dying of the small sense of self. There's a Sanskrit phrase, jivan mukta, which means to die while yet alive, to be walking on this earth and yet to let go in that deep, deep way. Rumi writes this. He says, I would love to kiss you. The price of kissing is your life. Now my loving is running towards my life, shouting, what a bargain, let's buy it. (laughs) It is a bargain. We're trading our deep attachment to a separate, ongoing self in exchange for bodhicitta, the awakened heart. And it's really the bargain we all want to make, you know. We're willing. Every one of us here is willing to die and have our hearts wake up. And we all have all sorts of habitual condition reflexes to go, no, not yet. (laughs) Rumi again. I am water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There's nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now in this ocean of pearl and currents I've lost track of which was mine. This happens in our moments. You know, there's not an enlightened state out there. There's enlightened moments. An enlightened moment is a moment that we've let go into life. We've become part of those purling currents. And even if we can't do it a whole lot of moments in a row, each moment 
that we bring a caring recognition to just this, just connect to this feeling, this sound, this breath, this sadness. Any moment that we do that is a moment where we've become free, is a moment where our hearts awakened a bit. And that seeds the habit of being more free. Each moment counts in that way. We love the moments that our self gets lost. We really do. We love it when we've let go into music and the music's become our being, or when we've started dancing and all there is is the movement and sensations of dancing freely. We love it when we're with each other and we lose ourself and it's just here we are. You know, These are the moments we cherish. So it's an important practice, part of our practice, to begin to sense enough. This moment is enough to drop into just this moment because we can find that richness and fullness in any moment that we do that with. As we wake up to our true nature, to this freedom, we realize our path is not one of individual liberation. We're all in it together. And every moment that we wake up, that we get kind, we affect all the beings around us. There's no way to separate our practice and what's emerging out of this practice from the awakening that's going on everywhere on the planet. Just like the lotus, with the, it's creating this heat so that all may fly. We're not doing this for our own liberation. We do this for the liberation of all beings. And we can deepen the sense of this if we do as the Tibetans do, if we end our sittings, end our practice, with that prayer that whatever the fruits of our practice may be, that they benefit all beings. Because what it does is it deepens our sense that we're just part of all beings. It's a really beautiful practice. And what the fruits of our practice are, are freedom, that we are free to live fully, that we're free to love fully. So let's just take a few moments now to sit in silence, and then we'll close this session. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.